We've been talking over the last few weeks about what is it that makes your feet hit the floor of a morning? What is your mission in life? And tying that into the idea that Jesus uh, was on a mission when he, when he was here on earth, that he had a plan and he had a focus. And we've, we've kind of keyed in on this passage that, where Jesus says that I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we've elaborated on that a little bit because most of the time people read that to say lost people. And we, we believe that it's more of a, an overarching kingdom thing, that he wants to restore everything, but that people are the primary focus of that. And we, we, we went through scripture and showed all these times that Jesus talked about why he came, and it was to seek uh, and, and, and restore the lost. It was to recovery of sight for the blind, for freedom for the oppressed, and that Jesus has this passion for people that he wants people to be free and he wants people to experience the kingdom of God, that everything that God is, Jesus wants for people. And so what we've been talking about is if that's the case and we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, then that somehow that mentality ought to kind of infiltrate our lives. That, that if we're really excited about Jesus and passionate about Jesus, that, that his mission and his passions ought to become our own. And so we've been talking about missions and outreach, which is one of our one of our four pillars, and it's one that we haven't been very effective at strategically. As a church, That we, we haven't done a whole lot for this particular pillar, and so we're starting here. We're starting with a conversation and talking about it, but the idea of doing outreach, like what does it mean to be a witness, or what does it mean to, to do uh, evangelism? That word even rubs us wrong. There's a, a popular preacher nowadays talks about evangophobia, that even the word evangelism frightens us and terrifies us. And, and sometimes it's because it's tied into the word evangelical, which is a political phrase nowadays. And so we tie in evangelism to a certain type of even political mentality, and it becomes very convoluted and complicated. And you know, then, then we have the, the, the issue of feeling like a schmooze, just feeling like if I'm going to talk to people about Jesus, that I'm always going to have this secret hidden motive behind it. Like I can't actually have genuine friendships with people because I always have this motive of trying to convert them. And so then how do we, how do we actually legitimately connect with people? And Then you deal with things like the Westboro Baptist Church that I think have just some of the lousiest theology there is. But in reality, when, when you have this mentality that you know, everybody's going to hell and my job is to keep them from going to hell, we kind of have a hidden Westboro Baptist in ourselves. And so we want to go to people and we really do have this kind of hidden thing that I'm befriending you, I'm getting close to you so that I can help you cross particular boundaries. And what we've all tied it into is that, that there's probably a shift in theological thinking that needs to happen in Christianity and especially in our own lives. Even if it happens only in this theater, it's a great start. And it's the difference between what we're calling bounded set theology and center set theology. And bounded set theology we described as this, is God is in the middle and there's boundaries that you need to cross to come to him. And that he has set these boundaries and that our job as witnesses, which a witness is just somebody who has seen something. If I'm called as a witness in a trial, I'm calling to talk about what I've seen. And so if we're going to be witnesses and we're talking about what we've seen, a lot of times what happens with a bounded set theology is we talk about the barriers. We talk about the boundaries. And we say you need to pray this prayer or you need to be dunked in water or you need to uh, think this way or change the way you think about this. You need to repent, stop sinning. And we put all these boundaries up and say once you cross these, you can be close to God. 
But the argument I've been presenting is that maybe Scripture presents an alternate view to, to the theology of what's called soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation, is what, what is salvation and, and, and how should we think about it. And so, to me, I embrace more of what they would call a center-set theology. And a center-set theology is not about the boundaries that you need to cross. It's about the middle that you need to be focused on. And the number one point that we made about this is that it puts Jesus in its rightful place, in his rightful place. So we think that Jesus is the center of the universe. We think that he is everything. He's the creator of all things. He's the, he's the representative of, of God, the revelation of God to man, that if we want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. And what happens with a bounded set theology is we want to get people to look at the boundaries. We want to get people to look at, for example, their sin. And, and then, then we want to look at methods to overcome sin. And the method to overcome sin might be to embrace Jesus, but we're still a lot of times focused on the method rather than on Jesus. And so a centered set theology isn't concerned with the boundaries that you've crossed. It's more concerned, as you can see in this type of picture, that God is in and, and moving in everything, and he's moving in your life, and he's moving in your neighbor's life, whatever religion they are, whatever background they come from, that he is moving. And what we're looking for is a shift in their orientation. We're looking towards people to turn towards Jesus and to embrace Jesus. And sometimes those are subtle shifts. Sometimes those are, are little microscopic things that happen in life that result in a big journey that nobody saw coming. And so we, we talked about two ways to farm cattle and how if you're a Texas rancher and you've got a thousand acres and you've got a thousand cattle, there's, there's a couple different ways to make those cattle congregate. So if you want the cattle close to the ranch at all times, there's a couple ways to do that. One is to herd them into stalls like this to herd them into basically behind fences. This is kind of a boundary set uh, missiology of farming. It's this idea that if I'll herd up the cattle and put them behind fences, then they will be close to the ranch. The other way is what we talked about as free range farming. And in free range farming, you give the cows the freedom to go where they want, but you put fresh water at one spot on your farm. You always distribute the food at one spot on your farm. And when you do that, the cattle naturally come to the center and yet are free. And it's no longer about the fences. It's no longer about herding people up. It's about supplying water. And Jesus, of course, we recognize in, in Scripture, described himself as the living water. And the centered set theology is the idea that we make Jesus look like Jesus should look. We show the world how great he is, how phenomenal he is, how awesome he is. And many of the people will want to congregate near him. We don't herd people up into fences. And so uh, go back and watch last week's sermon to talk about uh, some of this stuff. But I, I skipped a lot of it. I've done some skipping around. I'm just determined on this, on this series to kind of talk at a leisurely pace and talk about some of these things that I think are really important. But I think this idea of bounded set versus center set brings not necessarily clarity, but there's a lot of words that we throw around in Christianity that in my, sense, in my opinion they create dilemmas and issues with how people view God. So like the word evangelism, let's talk about that word for a minute. And I'll probably camp out on this slide for a little while. Evangelism has this idea of I'm going out to try to convert people. Whereas at its root in the original language, what it really means is basically light bearer. What it really means is bearer of goodness, bearer of good news. And I heard a popular teacher, <coughs> excuse me, I heard a popular teacher recently 
talk about how Christianity oftentimes makes the good news into bad news. So imagine this, you're at a store one day and a stranger comes up to you and says, oh man, I've got some, some news for you. Well, what's that? There's this mafia guy, his name's Guido, and apparently he's not very happy with your behavior lately. And he's determined that he's going to find you and he's going to torture you forever. But there's good news. Guido has decided to torture his son in your place. And if you will believe that, Guido is going to let you off the hook. Now, does anybody look at this situation and say, well, that does sound like pretty good news? Or do you think, that's just weird? And it's pretty scary, right? Now, what if a stranger comes in and says, hey, I've got good news for you. What's that? Well, you've been trying pretty hard to make ends meet recently. But I found out that you are the heir of your great-great-grandfather who was filthy rich. And he, he and his son and his son's son have been doing everything they could to find you, to bestow on you this treasure that's laid up for you. Because you're, you are still, even though you haven't known him, you are still very precious to him. And he's laid all this up for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you're doing in life right now, He's just thrilled that he found you. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't automatically say that every single person is going to accept that treasure, but it is a different kind of news, isn't it? And there's, there's, there's views on outreach and evangelism that treat people as if, and Bounded said it, 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 theology has a tendency to do this. You're on the outside. Something bad's going to happen to you unless you come on the inside. Whereas, I think an open-set theology says, you are treasure. You are treasured. And God has done everything he can to be close to you. And that, you see, that's very similar to the herding of, of the cattle mentality is, if you're saying you're on the outside, you better get inside the fences so that you can be fed. Or if you bring the water out and say, here it is, come get it. It's just a little bit different mentality of, of how we think about God and how we think about Scripture, how we think about words like evangelism or salvation. Salvation, a lot of times, we view as fire insurance. Uh, you're either going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell, and salvation will make the difference. Salvation, if you go back to the original language, if you go through the New Testament Greek, it's almost always based on the Greek derivative sozo. And if you look at the word sozo and all its derivatives, sozo is, is, is way more all-encompassing than just escaping the fire. Sozo is like all is right with the world. It means, I've heard it described as this, soundness in every area. And so a centered set theology, when you focus on Jesus and you make him the center and you move towards him, it changes everything. It changes the way you think about your friends, your relationships, your spouse, it thinks, the way you operate at your job, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time. Sozo changes everything. Sozo is an all-encompassing yes to the universe. And that's the goal that God wants to do through Jesus in people's lives. So it isn't just about crossing the boundary to say, you get to go to heaven or you get to go to hell. It's about you get to become conformed to what Jesus is like. And Jesus exists in perpetual glory and total awesomeness. Other words, uh, eternal life. If you read, um, for example, we talked about last week, 1 John 5.13 says that these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. We read eternal life, again, as heaven or hell, as a boundary that's been crossed. You're either in or you're out. Whereas eternal life, if you go back in the Greek, the word life is the word zoe. 
And Zoe is way, way bigger than just fire insurance. Zoe is, the, is another example of this all-encompassing becoming like God. It's becoming connected to God, walking in mercy and joy and peace, having the fullness of the life of God in you. It's much, much bigger than heaven or hell. Repentance, it, it changes. Repentance is no longer, I'm going to stop being like this and start being like this. Repentance literally means metaneia in the Greek, if I'm pronouncing it right. It means to turn, which is open set theology. It means I'm not heading in the wrong direction. I'm heading towards Jesus now. A, a sinner's prayer, altar call, for example. An altar call, for those of you that are unfamiliar, uh, in a lot of churches, they have what they call altar calls. and they, they, for whatever reason, describe the front of the church as the altar. And in the Old Testament, uh, the altar was a place of sacrifice. So the altar was a place that you came and laid something down, uh, and it would be consumed or burned or bled out. So you basically took some of your money and put it somewhere, and then it went away, and you did that as a sacrifice towards God. And, and there's all kinds of different sacrifices, but the idea of an altar call in churches today is that you make that kind of decision. You lay your life down. So uh, in a lot of churches, what you'll see is the pastor saying, anybody that wants to become a follower of Jesus today or become a Christian today, just raise your hand. Everybody keep your eyes closed, every head bowed. Raise your hand, and then I'm going to pray for you. And then there's an opportunity to come up front and pray what they call the sinner's prayer. And a sinner's prayer is something along the lines of, God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner and that I, have, that I need you, that I need forgiveness for my sins. Will you please come into my life and accept me? And, and I place my faith and trust in you. Something like that. It's different everywhere. Now, from a bounded set theology, the altar call and the sinner's prayer are goals. They're, they're, in, some, in some cases, they're end goals. I used to teach classes on evangelism. I used to travel all over the world and all over the country teaching people how to effectively share the good news of Jesus with people. And people always wanted to know the question, how do you close the deal? And that always just rubbed me the wrong way anyway. They say, okay, you've started this conversation with a stranger on the bus. You've talked to them about Jesus. Now how do you seal the deal? That's always really bothered me. But the, the idea of a sinner's prayer or an altar call, they're kind of sealing the deal type mentality. It's like, okay, you're ready to follow Jesus. Now pray this particular prayer with me. Uh, come up to the altar and, and do that. Now, from a center-set theology, we no longer view the sinner's prayer or the altar call as the end game. We don't view them as the primary things we're trying to accomplish in people's lives. However, we still get to embrace those things. We still get to be excited about them because we see them as steps in someone's journey. And they can be big steps. They can, I mean, it can be you're thousands of miles away from Jesus. And sometime during a church service, the pastor says, everybody's eyes closed, everybody head bowed. Who wants to follow Jesus today? And somebody raises their hand. That could be a gargantuan, massive step in someone's life. So it isn't to diminish those things. It isn't to minimize them or to say, you know, that, that we shouldn't do those things, that we shouldn't hand out gospel tracts or street preach or all these other things. But it's a different mentality about the reason we do these things and, and kind of the overarching methodology that God has in using these things. And there's lots and lots of words that change when you take an open set theology. I think it, 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 there's some really interesting passages of Scripture that I think make a whole lot more sense from this open set idea that Jesus is the center and that He is the goal of our lives and we're, our goal is that people will see Him clearly. And here's some examples. So Jesus Himself said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. First John tells us he's the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 
so these first two passages, if you have a bounded set theology, they're, they're really kind of hard to make sense of. What does that mean that he was the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? If we have this idea that the atonement of Jesus, it says he's the atoning sacrifice. If we have the, this idea that the work of Jesus that was accomplished is only worked in the lives of those who are on the inside and not those who are on the outside, this passage is challenging. But if you have this open set view that says the Father has richly supplied everything everybody needs everywhere, and people can or they don't have to respond to that. They can move in the opposite direction and head straight out if they want to. But it's there, and it's there for everybody. Hell was a word that was on the screen. There's a, there's a, a clip from the movie um, Gravity with Sandra Bullock. I don't know if you've seen this movie or not, but some debris comes through and slams into their space station while they're doing a spacewalk. And, and the short of it is she ends up just flying through space head over feet. So she's spinning, 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 and just taking off out into the, the inky darkness of space and screaming and yelling for help. And uh, there, there looks like there's no help for her. I, seeing that clip and talking about hell, that's, that's kind of how I view what hell is. Um, a lot of times in Scripture you hear, depart from me, are the, are the, is the phrase that Jesus uses. It means go away from me. Uh, so with a center set theology, that's what we're talking about, is if somebody wants to go away from the wonderful Father that has come to them, they have every right to do that. Hell is, it doesn't diminish hell. It doesn't say there is no hell. I, we'll talk about hell at a later date. But it, but it is to say that it's just a different way of viewing it. It's not that you're on the outside standing there hell bound, and if you would step over this particular fence, you would be heaven bound. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a different way of looking at things. Um, and there's passages in Scripture like, like Timothy, to Timothy, Paul says this. He says, women will be saved through childbirth. What does that even mean? Like that is, is there any more ultimately confounding passage of Scripture than that? I, I, and, and you get into, you know, was Paul a, a, a patriarchal misogynist or not? And I don't believe he was. Um, the next one says, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What? None of this makes sense from a bounded set theology. None of it makes sense if you're saying you have to cross these particular borders to experience fire insurance. But if you look at it as God is working and moving and having his way, maybe what this means is we look at saved in a different view. We say maybe saved means sozo. Maybe saved means uh, all is right with the world. And maybe what it's saying is in some cases women that, like my wife, for example, she always wanted to be a housewife and she always wanted to raise kids. And I'm not saying that should be the place for every woman. But what I'm saying is she has found her sozo in that area. She has found her turning towards God and being everything God asked her to be and called her to be in that area. Maybe that's what it's saying. Maybe it's saying for the unbelieving husband that God is working and moving in his relationship. Maybe just being married to the believer and sticking it out with her. Maybe that's something that's turning him in the right direction. Maybe that's what will ultimately end with all is right for the world with him. I think there's passages of Scripture that make more sense. And this one, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But it will be more bearable at the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. This is a passage where Jesus 
is calling out some of the cities nearby. And he's calling out Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he's comparing them to these ancient cities that were destroyed by the judgment of God, basically. And he's saying that if, look at that word if. This is, this is an important word in this passage. He says, if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in them, they would have repented long ago. Therefore, on judgment day, they will have it easier, easier than you. This is wacky stuff. What he's saying is, I'm going to judge them based on what they would have done under different circumstances than they had. Whoa! You mean, you mean maybe God looks at us differently than we look at each other? You mean maybe God knows more about a person's heart and their mind and their biochemistry and, and their, their circumstantial makeup? And maybe, maybe He gets them in ways that we don't. And maybe He doesn't want us looking at people and trying to figure out where they're going, what their eternal destiny is, like Romans 10 tells us that we talked about last week. So here's a passage that says, On Judgment Day, at least some people will be judged not on what they did, but on what they would have done. Wow. Maybe God's really smart. The people who are torturing Jesus, nailing Him to a cross, splitting His skin, beating Him around the head, this is what Jesus says about them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I confessed to you guys about how I accidentally took a loaded firearm through security at the airport recently, one of the more embarrassing moments of my life. I just had it accidentally tucked in a bag that I had packed and just stupid. Well, I got a $1,500 fine this week for that event. And they're, they're giving me some options. And I kind of just think, well, I ought to just pay double that and just call myself an idiot and move on with life. They're giving me some options as far as I can call, you know, I can, I can send in a letter or I can call an official investigation and, and, and have some conversations with some official people. So there's five options. And I don't see any option anywhere that I can just say, yeah, but I didn't know. Like, when it comes to the law, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not an excuse. You can be driving, at, you know, 55 miles an hour in a 35, and if the cop pulls you over and says you were driving 55 in a 35, you can say, well, I didn't know it was 35. He says, tough. Now, he might show you some mercy, but as far as the law is concerned, ignorance is not an exception. But Jesus seems to think otherwise. I mean, in this particular passage, the worst people that ever lived, these are the worst of the worst. They're torturing and killing the Son of God. He says, but they're ignorant. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. Do you see the mercy? I consider this the pivotal moment in all of Scripture. This is the lens that I view all of Scripture through, and it's mercy. And then you have to ask, why, why did Jesus talk in parables? He would tell stories all the time. The Good Samaritan is one of them. The Pearl of Great Price. All these stories that have become famous. And his disciples rightly ask him, Jesus, why do you do that? You know, if bounded set theology is the right way to think and the, the way to go to heaven is to pray a particular prayer and believe a certain thing about Jesus rightly, why didn't Jesus just get up and stink and say that? Why didn't He just say, people, here's what you've got to do. 
do this, 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 and this, and everything will be all right. Now, there are cases where someone came to him and said, what do I do? And he still was a little bit evasive. And his disciples say to him, why do you talk in parables all the time? Why don't you just say it? He says, well, if I told them everything, then they'd know it. Why would Jesus think that way? You know, because Scripture also elsewhere teaches that to whom much is given, much is required. And so maybe there's cases where Jesus doesn't unload on people because he knows if he unloads on people, they're going to carry a heavier weight of knowledge than others. Again, maybe Jesus is just really smart. Maybe he just knows what's going on. Maybe we've got a lot of things wrong. There's this debate between, not a debate, a dialogue about ontology and epistemology where it deals with soteriology. So soteriology is the study of salvation. It's what does it mean to be saved and what even is salvation? What is sozo? What, what does it mean to go to heaven or to eternal life or the kingdom of heaven? What do all those things mean and how do we get there? Well, the ontology versus epistemology concept that surrounds soteriology is this. Ontology, and these are words if you're going to study theology at all you should become familiar with, but ontology is basically a study of what is. It is what is reality? What is out there? Whereas epistemology is more about what is knowledge. What do we know about what is out there? Or what can be known about what is out there? And so the question when it comes to soteriology is, so we, we agree that ontologically Jesus is the center. He is salvation. Jesus is everything. He has done the work required so that we might be saved. That's the reality. That's the ontology. That's what is. When it comes to epistemology, the question then becomes, how do we have to know that for it to be appropriated? If you, if you go to what's called the Fire Bible, my credentials are with the Assemblies of God, and the Assemblies of God would be considered probably one of the more conservative denominations in the world. It's the largest denomination in the world, uh, globally, not in the States, but globally. Largest mission-sending organization that has ever existed. Uh, but they would be considered pretty conservative in their theology and, and a lot of their practices, and even probably tied into some politics. They're pretty conservative. And it's interesting, if you go to the Fire Bible, which is like the, the poster Bible of the Assemblies of God, it's the, it's, the, it's the Bible version that Assemblies of God missionaries all over the world pass out. There's an article in there on soteriology, on salvation. And the interesting thing is, at the beginning of this article, it starts off with, Jesus Christ is the, is the means and the method, I'm paraphrasing, the means and the method of salvation. Jesus Christ is the center. But it says how those means and method or how the work of Jesus Christ is appropriated in each individual's life can get pretty confusing. And that's, that's a pretty amazing confession from a pretty conservative denomination organization. I, I'm not saying that that's part of the fundamental truth of the Assemblies of God, but what I am saying is even the most conservative scholars look at salvation and say, you know, there's, there's a little bit of confusion as to how this all goes down. Maybe God, like we said, is really smart and he's, he's very merciful. So look at this picture and let's pretend that this church service is going on and there's a guy out walking in the streets. Let's talk about this guy back here in the black suit and the, and the white collared shirt. And maybe he heard about this church and he goes in and, and uh, he's, he listens during the sermon and he enjoys the music and he's, he's interested in Jesus and he's not even really sure why he's there. But at the end of the service, the pastor gives an altar call, a traditional Every head bowed, every eyes closed, raise your hand if you want to be a follower of Jesus. And 
right as he's giving this, the guy's nervous. He knows he wants to respond. And he thinks, okay, 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 okay. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to do this. And he's getting ready to raise his hand when his nervousness gives him a massive stroke and he falls over dead in the pew. <laughs> Everybody's a little uncomfortable right now. <laughs> now, is he saved? I mean, depending on your theology on bounded sets versus open sets, if you're a strict bounded set person, kind of what you have to say is no. He didn't pray the sinner's prayer. He was never water baptized. He didn't go through the right steps to achieve salvation. Bummer for him, right? But if you embrace how smart God is and how merciful he is, and you recognize that he says things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Or, woe to you cities, because if these people had done what they would have done had the gospel been preached there, judgment, and judgment's going to be easier for those people. You see, Jesus can look at this guy. In an open-set theology, Jesus can look at this guy and, and see his heart and see his direction and say, he would have gotten there. Bam, you're in, pal. But then he asks the question, what if his stroke had happened as he was walking up the steps to the church? Well, I don't know. What if it had happened a week before and he hadn't even been invited to the church yet? Well, that's trouble, right? What if it happened when he was an infant? Isn't it possible God sorts things out in different ways than we do? Now, as a pastor, should I give the altar call? Should people have the opportunity to raise their hand and say, yes, I'd like to follow Jesus or to be baptized or to take these different steps? Absolutely, yes. But it's not my responsibility to figure out who's in and who's out. It's my responsibility to set up Jesus as the center and say, everybody come. Everybody freely come. God has created this world where it's kind of messy. I mean, I, I, sometimes you wonder, why doesn't he just split the sky? What does he just say to everybody? This is what you've got to do. It's probably because maybe he values something more than just us hearing the right stuff at the right time and doing the right things. Maybe he really has a hankering for freedom. You know, maybe, maybe he really considers freedom and, 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 and freedom, love, is a con love and freedom are, in, are intimately tied together. You can't have one with the other. And maybe he just wants the world to be out there so people can choose. People can turn in one direction or the other. Maybe, maybe those things are important to him. Paul goes into, uh, I think it was the city of Corinth in the book of Acts. And he's looking around and he's, he's wanting to preach to the people about Jesus and the resurrected Jesus. And he's, he's wanting to tell them about the gospel. He's wanting to be a witness an evangelist. He's wanting to share the good news. And he looks around, and he sees all these idols. And now, now he, he came from a Jewish upbringing where he was kind of a Jewish rabbi leader. I mean, he was a big dog in the Jewish faith. And for him to see these idols would be anathema to him. He would be like, no, stop it. And I heard an author recently describe that as if if today, so if I'm a pastor, and let's say I go to a strip club here in town, and I go in, and there's, there's, there's naked women dancing around poles, and I go in, and I'm wanting to witness to people. Now, the, 
as a modern day pastor, seeing that, I'd be like, no, make it stop. You've got to stop that behavior. That's, that, that would be kind of my perspective on it. And the author compared that to Paul's perspective on idols. He said when he goes into Corinth and he sees all these idols, that's, that's Paul's visceral response. He's like, oh, this has got to stop. This is terrible. This is bad. Now, as modern day Christians, what we want to do is go in and we want to picket the naked women. We want to go in and say, stop doing the bad stuff. Stop doing these bad things and, and come to our side. And Paul doesn't take that approach. Despite the fact that he sees these idols and they, they rub him completely raw, that's not his response. Instead, he goes to the, the, the religious leaders at the time. He says, hey, guys, he says, I notice all your idols out here. He says, and it seems to me that you guys must be kind of interested in, in God and stuff. I'm paraphrasing clearly. He says, you guys must be pretty interested in spiritual stuff. And I noticed this one idol that you've got, that's the, it's, it's an idol to an unknown God. And I'm here to tell you about that God that you don't know about. And he uses that as a segue into presenting the gospel and talking about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And that would be like me going into the strip club and saying, guys, I notice you really admire naked women a lot. I noticed that you must really enjoy the beauty of women. Let me tell you about something else that's extremely beautiful. And you see, you see a different perspective there. It's not going in and trying to tell people how they're wrong and how they ought to stop being wrong and turn right. It's coming in, and like, like this says, it's finding connecting points. It's finding out where you and your Muslim neighbor do connect. And then you can use that. And, and I'm not saying use it. I even want to be careful about saying use. As in, people are not projects. And people can tell when they become projects. Instead, you, you sincerely, legitimately connect with people and then as God lives in you, he uses that to turn stuff around. The Rock was recently a big deal on Facebook, and he was talking about his first time in, in pro wrestling. And, you know, the, 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 I, I don't want to ruin it for you, but pro wrestling is not real, okay? <laughs> um, however, the fans' response to pro wrestling shapes their careers, if the fans don't respond, you are done. And he talked about the very first time that he, he was in the WWE and he got up. And it's really funny. He, 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 he stands up on the stage and he's supposed to you look at the camera and go, rah! And he forgets where the camera is, so he turns his back on the camera and looks away from the camera and goes, rah! And you can just tell he's a total rookie. But what happens is he's fighting a couple of the bad guys. He's supposed to be the good guy. He's got an afro at this point. Check it out. It's pretty cool. The rock and an afro. But he... He ends up beating them. It's his day to be the good guy who wins. And what happens is the fans start chanting, rock, 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 rock. And, and, and at this point, everyone knows this guy is going places in this career. The, the fans loved him and embraced him and shouted his name. Under a bounded set theology, we don't get to do that to people. We have to be super careful about doing that. We talked about Brian Head Welch, the guitarist of Korn, last week. You know, somebody who is making strides towards Jesus, but they're still what we would call way off. We don't get to start yelling their name. Go, go, yes, yes, yes. Instead, we have to say, nope, sorry, not there yet, pal. When I married my wife, let's, let's just pretend that she never closes the shower curtain, which she does, but let's just pretend. 
If I every day, all day say, why won't you close the stupid shower curtain? Close the curtain. Why, why can't you get this through your head? Close the curtain, close the curtain, close the curtain. Now she may start closing the curtain, but what has happened to our relationship? Or instead, I say, you know, I'd really like it if you close the curtain, but you know what, whether you do or you don't, you are pretty fantastic. I like you quite a bit, and I'm going to keep you around for at least three, four more weeks. <laughs> okay. Now, let, let's just say that instead of beating her up and telling her where she's wrong, I build her up and tell her where she's right. Then what happens to the relationship? See, we, wanna, we want with non-Christians to beat them up and tell them where they're wrong. And I'm convinced that's just not the best method of doing it. I'm convinced the best method is to yell their name, chant their name. Wherever they are, whatever they're doing, you are important. You are spectacular. You have inestimable worth. God would do anything for you, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're doing. And I have a feeling that more people would turn towards a God who is demonstrated like that than one who is demonstrated the other way. Again, we're putting Jesus in his rightful place. I was up at 2 in the morning about two weeks ago and uh, was thinking about the church and thinking about how do we grow a church and how hard that is and, and how, do you, how do you minister to all these people that are hurting and you know, all these calls for missionaries needing support. And it's, just, it's really challenging. And so I'm, I'm pretty strategic. I'll sit down and I'll make lists and I'm going on a retreat next weekend so that I can plan. There's nothing wrong with planning. But I woke up at 2 in the morning with the verse in my mind, and I was up from 2 to 5 just praying and walking in the house, and the verse was on my mind, cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. That's a passage that gets quoted often in you know, little plaques that people have on their walls at their homes. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. And I looked up that passage and, blow my mind, decided to read it actually in context. And the interesting thing about that context is that passage follows Paul's instructions to young preachers. He's talking about how do you build a church, basically. How, how do you effectively minister to a group of people? And this is, this is what he says. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So his instruction to pastors, basically, is just turn this over to God. Is just lay this stuff at the feet of God and let, let God be God. And I, as I've been thinking about bounded sets versus, versus center sets, I think a lot of times what we do is we make laws into lords. We, we make the rules into what is super important. We make the steps that people have to, that we expect people to take as God. When in reality, what we ought to do is let God be God. And I'm not saying people shouldn't respond to an altar call. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hope that people will be water baptized. But the moment we start making altar calls and baptism, God is a moment that I think we've stepped off of good, solid theology. Instead, we put Jesus at the center, make Jesus the living water at the middle, and, and do our best to, to show him as compelling, show him as amazing, show him as who he is. And I think as he does that, I think people, people will come running.